Ethan Frome by Edith Wharton. This is chapter five. They finished supper, and while Mattie cleared the table, Ethan went to look at the cows and then took a last turn about the house. The earth lay dark under a muffled sky, and the air was so still that now and then he heard a lump of snow come thumping down from a tree far off on the edge of the wood lot. When he returned to the kitchen, Mattie had pushed up his chair to the stove and seated herself near the lamp with a bit of sewing. The scene was just as he had dreamed of it that morning. He sat down, drew his pipe from his pocket, and stretched his feet to the glow. His hard day's work in the keen air made him feel at once lazy and light of mood, and he had a confused sense of being in another world where all was warmth and harmony and time could bring no change. The only drawback to his complete well-being was the fact that he could not see Mattie from where he sat, but he was too indolent to move, and after a moment he said, "'Come over here and sit by the stove.' Zena's empty rocking chair stood facing him. Mattie rose obediently and seated herself in it. As her young brown head detached itself against the patchwork cushion that habitually framed his wife's gaunt countenance, Ethan had a momentary shock. It was almost as if the other face— the face of the superseded woman had obliterated that of the intruder. After a moment, Mattie seemed to be affected by the same sense of constraint. She changed her position, leaning forward to bend her head above her work, so that he only saw the foreshortened tip of her nose and the streak of red in her hair. Then she slipped to her feet, saying, I can't see to sew, and went back to her chair by the lamp. Ethan made a pretext of getting up to replenish the stove, and when he returned to his seat, he pushed it sideways that he might get a view of her profile and of the lamplight falling on her hands. The cat, who had been a puzzled observer of these unusual movements, jumped up into Zena's chair, rolled itself into a ball, and lay watching them with narrowed eyes. Deep quiet sank on the room. The clock ticked above the dresser. A piece of charred wood fell now and then in the stove, and the faint sharp scent of the geraniums mingled with the odor of Ethan's smoke, which began to throw a blue haze about the lamp and to hang its grayish cobwebs in the shadowy corners of the room. All constraint had vanished between the two, and they began to talk easily and simply. They spoke of everyday things, of the prospect of snow, of the next church sociable, of the loves and quarrels of Starkfield, the commonplace nature of what they said produced in Ethan an illusion of long-established intimacy, which no outburst of emotion could have given, and he set his imagination adrift on the fiction that they had always spent their evenings thus and would always go on doing so. This is the night we were to have gone coasting, Matt, he said at length with the rich sense, as he spoke, that they could go on any other night they chose, since they still had all the time before them. She smiled back at him. I guess you forgot. No, I didn't forget. But it's as dark as Egypt outdoors. We might go tomorrow if there's a moon. She laughed with pleasure, her head tilted back, the lamplight sparkling on her lips and teeth. That would be lovely, Ethan. He kept his eyes fixed on her, marveling at the way her face changed with each turn of their talk, like a wheat field under a summer breeze. It was intoxicating to find such magic in his clumsy words, and he longed to try new ways of using it. 
Would you be scared to go down to the Corbury Road with me on a night like this? He asked. Her cheeks burned redder. I ain't any more scared than you are. Well, I'd be scared. Then I wouldn't do it. That's an ugly corner down by the big elm. If a fellow didn't keep his eyes open, he'd go plumb into it. Kate luxuriated in the sense of protection and authority which his words conveyed. To prolong the intensity of the feeling, he added, I guess we're well enough here. She let her lid sink slowly in the way he loved. Yes, we're well enough here, she sighed. Her tone was so sweet that he took the pipe from his mouth and drew his chair up to the table. Leaning forward, he touched the farther end of the strip of brown stuff that she was hemming. Say, Matt, he began with a smile, what do you think I saw under the Varnum spruces coming along home just now? I saw a friend of yours getting kissed. The words had been on his tongue all the evening, but now that he had spoken them, they struck him as inexpressibly vulgar and out of place. Mattie blushed to the roots of her hair and pulled her needle rapidly twice or thrice through her work, insensibly drawing the end of it away from him. I suppose it was Ruth and Ned, she said in a low voice, as though he had suddenly touched on something grave. Ethan had imagined that his illusion might open the way to the accepted pleasantries, and these perhaps in turn to a harmless caress, if only a mere touch on her hand. But now he felt as if her blush had set a flaming guard about her. He supposed it was his natural awkwardness that made him feel so. He knew that most young men made nothing at all of giving a pretty girl a kiss, and he remembered that the night before, when he had put his arm about Maddie, she had not resisted. But that had been out of doors, under the open, irresponsible night. Now, in the warm, lamp-lit room, with all its ancient implications of conformity and order, she seemed infinitely farther away from him and more unapproachable. To ease his constraint, he said, I suppose they'll be setting a date before long. Yes, I shouldn't wonder if they got married some time along in the summer. She pronounced the word married as if her voice caressed it. It seemed a rustling covert leading to enchanted glades. A pang shot through Ethan, and he said, twisting away from her in his chair, It'll be your turn next, I wouldn't wonder. She laughed a little uncertainly. Why do you keep on saying that? He echoed her laugh. I guess I do, I guess I do it to get used to the idea. He drew up to the table again, and she sewed on in silence with dropped lashes while he sat in fascinated contemplation of the way in which her hands went up and down above the strip of stuff, just as he had seen a pair of birds make short perpendicular flights over a nest they were building. At length, without turning her head or lifting her lids, she said in a low tone, it's not because you think Zena's got anything against me, is it? His former dread started up full-armed at the suggestion. Why, what do you mean? He stammered. She raised distressed eyes to his, her work dropping on the table between them. I don't know. I, I thought last night she seemed to have. I'd like to know what? He growled. Nobody can tell with Zena. It was the first time they had ever spoken so openly of her attitude toward Maddie and the repetition of the name seemed to carry it to the farther corners of the room and send it back to them in a long repercussion of sound. Maddie waited as if to give the echo time to drop, and then went on. She hasn't said anything to you? He shook his head. No, not a word. 
She tossed the hair back from her forehead with a laugh. I guess I'm just nervous then. I'm not going to think about it anymore. Oh, no, don't, don't. Let's think about it, Matt. The sudden heat of his tone made her color mount again, not with a rush, but gradually, delicately, like the reflection of a thought stealing slowly across her heart. She sat silent, her hands clasped on her work, and it seemed to him that a warm current flowed toward him along the strip of stuff that still lay unrolled between them. Cautiously, he slid his hand palmward down along the table till his fingertips touched the end of the stuff. A faint vibration of her lashes seemed to show that she was aware of his gesture and that it had sent a countercurrent back to her, and she let her hands lie motionless on the other end of the strip. As they sat thus, he heard a sound behind him and turned his head. The cat had jumped from Gina's chair to dart at a mouse in the wainscot, and as a result of the sudden movement, the empty chair had set up a, spe a spectral rocking. She'll be rocking in it herself this time tomorrow, Ethan thought. I've been in a dream, and this is the only evening we'll, evening we'll ever have together. The return to reality was as painful as the return to consciousness after taking an, an, an anesthetic. His body and brain ached with indescribable weariness, and he could think of nothing to say or to do that should arrest the mad flight of the moments. His alteration of mood seemed to have communicated itself to Maddie. She looked up at him languidly, as though her lids were weighted with sleep, and it cost her an effort to raise them. Her glance fell on his hand, which now completely covered the end of her work and grasped it as if it were a part of herself. He saw how scarcely perceptible tremor he saw a scarcely perceptible tremor cross her face, and without knowing what he did, he stooped his head and kissed the bit of stuff in, it, in his hold. As his lips rested on it, he felt it glide slowly from beneath him and saw that Maddie had risen and was silently rolling up her work. She fastened it with a pin and then, finding her thimble and scissors, put them with the roll of stuff into the box covered with fancy paper, which he had once brought to her from Bettsbridge. He stood up also, looking vaguely about the room. The clock above the dresser struck eleven. Is the fire all right? she asked in a low voice. He opened the door of the stove and poked aimlessly at the embers. When he raised himself again, he saw that she was dragging toward the stove the old soapbox lined with carpet in which the cat made its bed. Then she recrossed the floor and lifted two of the geranium pots in her arms, moving them away from the cold window. He followed her and brought the other geraniums, the hyacinth bulbs in a cracked custard bowl, and the German ivy trained over an old croquet hoop. When these nightly duties were performed, there was nothing left to do but to bring in the tin candlestick from the passage, light the candle, and blow out the lamp. Ethan put the candlestick in Maddie's hand, and she went out of the kitchen ahead of him. The light that she carried before her, making her dark hair look like a drift of mist on the moon. Good night, Matt, he said, as he put her foot, as she put her foot on the first step of the stairs. She turned and looked at him a moment. Good night, Ethan, she answered and went up. When the door of her room had closed on her, he remembered that he had not even touched her hand. Chapter 6 The next morning at breakfast, 
Jotham Powell was between them, and even tried to hide his joy under an air of exaggerated indifference, lounging back in his chair to throw scraps to the cat, growling at the weather, and not so much as offering to help Maddie when she rose to clear away the dishes. He did not know why he was so irrationally happy, for nothing was changed in his life or hers. He had not even touched the tip of her fingers or looked her full in the eyes. But their evening together had given him a vision of what life at her side might be, and he was glad now that he had done nothing to trouble the sweetness of the picture. He had a fancy that she knew what had restrained him. There was a last load of lumber to be hauled to the village, and Jotham Powell, who did not work regularly for Ethan in winter, had come round to help with the job. But a wet snow, melting to sleet, had fallen in the night and turned the roads to glass. There was more wet in the air, and it seemed likely to both men that the weather would milden toward the afternoon and make the going safer. Ethan, therefore, proposed to his assistant that they should load the sledge at the woodlot, as they had done on the previous morning, and put off the teaming to Starkville till later in the day. This plan had the advantage of enabling him to send Jotham to the flats after dinner to meet Zenobia, while he himself took the lumber down to the village. He told Jotham to go out and harness up the greys, and after a moment he and Maddie had the kitchen to themselves. She had plunged the breakfast dishes into a tin dishpan and was bending above and was bending above it with her slim arms bare to the elbow, the steam from the hot water beating her forehead and tightening her rough hair into little brown rings like the tendrils on a traveler's joy. Ethan stood looking at her, his heart in his throat. He wanted to say, we shall never be alone like this again. Instead, he reached down his tobacco pouch from a shelf of the dresser, put it into his pocket, and said, I guess I can make out to be home for dinner. She answered, All right, Ethan, and he heard her singing over the dishes as, she, as he went. As soon as the sledge was loaded, he meant to send Jotham back to the farm and hurry on foot into the village to buy the glue for the pickle dish. With ordinary luck, he should have had time to carry out this plan, but everything went wrong from the start. On the way over to the woodlot, one of the greys slipped on a glare of ice and cut his knee. And when they got him up again, Jotham had tried to go back to the barn for a strip of rag to bind the cut. Then, when the loading finally began, a sleety rain was coming down once more, and the tree trunks were so slippery that it took twice as long as usual to lift them and to get them in place on the sledge. It was what Jotham called a sour morning for work, and the horses, shivering and stamping under their wet blankets, seemed to like it as little as the men. It was long past the dinner hour when the job was done, and Ethan had to give up going to the village because he wanted to lead the injured horse home and wash the cut himself. He thought that by starting out again with the lumber as soon as he had finished his dinner, he might get back to the farm with the glue before Jotham and the old sorrel had had time to fetch Zenobia from the flats, but he knew the chance was a slight one. It turned on the state of the roads and on the possible lateness of the Bettsbridge train. He remembered afterward with a grim flash of self-derision what importance he had attached to the weighing of these probabilities. As soon as dinner was over, he set out again for the wood lot, not daring to linger till Jotham Powell left. The hired man was still drying his feet at the stove, and Ethan could only give Maddie a quick look as he said beneath his breath, I'll be back early. 
He fancied that she nodded her comprehension, and with that scant solace, he had to trudge off through the rain. He had driven his load halfway to the village when Jotham Powell overtook him, urging the reluctant Sorrel toward the flats. I'll have to hurry up to do it, Ethan mused as the sleigh dropped down ahead of him over the dip of the schoolhouse hill. He worked like ten at the unloading, and when it was over, hastened on to Michael Edie's for the glue. Edie and his assistant were both down street, and young Dennis, who seldom deigned to take their place, was lounging by the stove with a knot of the golden youth of Starkfield. They hailed Ethan with ironic compliment and offers of conviviality, but no one knew where to find the glue. Ethan, consumed with the longing for a last moment alone with Maddie, hung about impatiently while Dennis made an ineffectual search in the obscure corners of the store. Looks as if we're all sold out, but if you wait around till the old man comes along, maybe he can put his hands on it. I'm obliged to you, but I'll try if I can get it down at Mrs. Homan's, Ethan answered, burning to be gone. Dennis's commercial instinct compelled him to aver an oath that what Edie's store could not produce would never be found at the widow Homan's, but Ethan, heedless of this boast, had already climbed to the sledge and was driving on to the rival establishment. Here, after considerable search and sympathetic questions as to what he wanted it for and whether ordinary flour paste wouldn't do as well if she couldn't find it, the widow Holman finally hunted down her solitary bottle of glue to its hiding place in a medley of cough lozenges and corset lacings. I hope Zena ain't broke it, broken anything she set store by, she called after him as he turned the grays toward home. The fitful bursts of sleet had changed into a steady rain and the horses had heavy work even without a load behind them. Once or twice, hearing sleigh bells, Ethan turned his head, fancying that Zena and Jotham might overtake him. But the old sorrel was not in sight, and he set his face against the rain and urged on his ponderous pair. The barn was empty when the horses turned into it, and after giving them the most perfunctory ministrations they had ever received from him, he strode up to the house and pushed open the kitchen door. Maddie was there alone, and as he had pictured her. She was bending over a pan on the stove, but at the sound of his steps she turned with a start and sprang to him. "'See here, Matt, I've got some stuff to mend the dish with. Let me get at it quick,' he cried, waving the bottle in one hand while he put her lightly aside. But she did not seem to hear him. Oh, Ethan, Zena's come, she said in a whisper, clutching his sleeve. They stood and stared at each other, pale as culprits. But the sorrel's not in the barn, Ethan stammered. Jotham Powell brought some goods over from the flats for his wife, and he drove right on home with them, she explained. He gazed blankly about the kitchen, which looked cold and squalid in the rainy winter twilight. How is she? he asked, dropping his voice to Maddie's whisper. She looked away from him uncertainly. I don't know. She went right up to her room. She didn't say anything? No. Ethan let out his doubts in a low whistle and thrust the bottle back into his pocket. Don't fret. I'll come down and mend it in the night, he said. He pulled on his wet coat again and went back to the barn to feed the greys. While he was there, Jotham Powell drove up with the sleigh, and when the horses had been attended to, Ethan said to him, You might as well come back up for a bite. He was not sorry to assure himself of Jotham's neutralizing presence at the supper table, for Zena was always nervous after a journey. 
but the hired man, though seldom loth to accept a meal not included in his wages, opened his stiff jaws to answer slowly, I'm obliged to you, but I guess I'll go back along. Ethan looked at him in surprise. Better come up and dry off. Looks as if there'd be something hot for supper. Jotham's face muscles were unmoved by this appeal, and his vocabulary being limited, he merely repeated, I guess I'll go along back. To Ethan, there was something vaguely ominous in this stolid rejection of free food and warmth, and he wondered what had happened on the drive to nerve Jotham to such stoicism. Perhaps Zena had failed to see the new doctor or not liked his counsels. Ethan knew that in such cases, the first person she met was likely to be held responsible for her grievance. When he re-entered the kitchen, the lamp lit up, the same scene of shining comfort as on the previous evening. The table had been as carefully laid, a clear fire glowed in the stove, the cat dozed in its warmth, and Maddie came forward carrying a plate of doughnuts. She and Ethan looked at each other in silence. Then she said, as she had not said the night before, I guess it's about time for supper. Chapter 7 Ethan went out into the passage to hang up his wet garments. He listened for Zena's step, and not hearing it, called her name up the stairs. She did not answer, and after a moment's hesitation, he went up and opened her door. The room was almost dark, but in the obscurity he saw her sitting by the window, bolt upright, and knew by the rigidity of the outline projected against the pane that she had not taken off her traveling dress. Well, Zena, he ventured from the threshold. She did not move, and he continued, Supper's about ready, ain't you coming? She replied, I don't feel as if I could touch a morsel. It was the consecrated formula, and he expected it to be followed, as usual, by her rising and going down to supper. But she remained seated, and he could think of nothing more felicitous than, I presume you're tired after the long ride. Turning her head at this, she answered solemnly, I'm a great deal sicker than you think. Her words fell on his ear with a strange shock of wonder. He had often heard her pronounce them before, but what if at last they were true? He advanced a step or two into the dim room. I hope that's not so, Zena, he said. She continued to gaze at him through the twilight with a mien of wan authority, as of one consciously singled out for a great fate. I've got complications, she said. Ethan knew the word for one of excep exceptional import. Almost everybody in the neighborhood had troubles, frankly, localized and specified, but only the chosen had complications. To have them was in itself a distinction, though it was also, in most cases, a death warrant. People struggled on for years with troubles, but they almost always succumbed to complications. Ethan's heart was jerking to and fro between two extremities of feeling, but for the moment, compassion prevailed. His wife looked so hard and lonely sitting there in the darkness with such thoughts. Is that what the new doctor told you? He asked, instinctively lowering his voice. Yes, he says, any regular doctor would want me to have an operation. Ethan was aware of that in regard to the important question of surgical intervention. The female opinion of the neighborhood was divided some glorifying in the, in the prestige conferred by operations, while others shunned them as indelicate. Ethan, from motives of economy, had always been glad that Zena was of the latter faction. In the agitation caused by the gravity of her announcement, he sought a consolatory shortcut. What do you know about this doctor anyway? 
Nobody ever told you that before. He saw his blunder before she could take it up. She wanted sympathy, not consolation. I didn't need to have anybody tell me that I was losing ground every day. Everybody but you could see it. And everybody in Bettsbridge knows about Dr. Buck. He has his office in Worcester and comes over once a fortnight to Shad's Falls and Bettsbridge for consultations. Eliza Spears was wasting away with kidney trouble before she went to him, and now she's up and around and singing in the choir. Well, I'm glad of that. You must do just what he tells you. Ethan answered sympathetically. She was still looking at him. I mean to, she said. He was struck by a new note in her voice. It was neither whining nor reproachful, but dryly resolute. What does he want you should do? he asked with a mounting vision of fresh expenses. He wants I should have a hired girl. He says I oughtn't to have to do a single thing round the house. A hired girl? Ethan stood transfixed. Yes, and Aunt Martha found me one right off. Everybody said I was lucky to get a girl to come away out here, and I agreed to give her a dollar extra to make sure. She'll be over tomorrow afternoon. Wrath and dismay contented in Ethan. He had foreseen an immediate demand for money, but not a permanent drain on his scant resources. He no longer believed that Zena had told him of the supposed seriousness of her state. He saw in her expedition to Bedsbridge only a plot hatched between herself and her pierced relations to foist on him the cost of a servant, and for the moment wrath predominated. If you meant to engage a girl, you ought to have told me before you started, he said. How could I tell you before I started? How did I know what Dr. Buck would say? Oh, Dr. Buck. Ethan's incredulity escaped in a short laugh. Did Dr. Buck tell you how I was to pay her wages? Her voice rose furiously with his. No, he didn't, for I'd have been ashamed to tell him that you grudged me the money to get back my health when I lost it nursing your own mother. You lost your health nursing mother? Yes, and my folks all told me at the time you couldn't do no more less than marry me after. Zena. Through the obscurity which hid their faces, their thoughts seemed to dart at each other like serpents shooting venom. Ethan was seized with horror of the scene and shame at his own share in it. It was as senseless and savage as a physical fight between two enemies in the darkness. He turned to the shelf above the chimney, groped for matches, and lit one candle in the room. At first, its weak flame made no impression on the shadows. Then Zena's face stood grimly out against the uncurtained pane, which had turned from gray to black. It was the first scene of open anger between the couple in their sad seven years together, and Ethan felt as if he had lost an irretrievable advantage in descending to the level of recrimination. But the practical problem was there and had to be dealt with. You know I haven't got the money to pay for a girl, Zena. You'll have to send her back. I can't do it. The doctor says I'll be, it'll be my death if I go on slaving the way I've had to. He doesn't understand how I've stood it as long as I have. Slaving? He checked himself again. You shan't lift a hand if he says so. I'll do everything round the house myself. She broke in. You're neglecting the farm enough already. And this being true, he found no answer and left her time to add ironically, better send me over to the almhouse and done with it. I guess there has been thrones there afore now. The taunt burned into him, but he let it pass. I haven't got the money. That settles it. There was a moment's pause in the struggle, as though the combatants were testing their weapons. Then Zena said in a level voice, 
I thought you were to get $50 from Andrew Hale for that lumber. Andrew Hale never pays under three months. He had hardly spoken, spoken when he remembered the excuse he had made for not accompanying his wife to the station the day before, and the blood rose to his frowning brows. Why, you told me yesterday you'd fixed it up with them to pay cash down. You said that that was why you couldn't drive me over to the flats. Ethan had no suppleness in deceiving. He had never before been convicted of a lie, and all the resources of evasion failed him. I guess that was a misunderstanding, he stammered. You ain't got the money? No. Ain't you going to get it? No. Well, I couldn't know that when I engaged the girl, could I? No. He paused to control his voice. But you know it now. I'm sorry, but it can't be helped. You're a poor man's wife, Zena, but I'll do the best I can for you. For a while, she sat motionless, as if reflecting, her arms stretched along the arms of her chair, her eyes fixed on vacancy. Oh, I guess we'll make out, she said mildly. The change in her tone reassured him. Of course we will. There's a whole lot more I can do for you, Maddie. Zena, while he spoke, seemed to be following out some elaborate mental calculation. He emerged from it to say, There'll be Maddie's board less, anyhow. Ethan, supposing the discussion to be over, had turned to go down to supper. He stopped short, not grasping what he heard. Maddie's boardless? He began again. Zena laughed. It was an odd, unfamiliar sound. He did not remember ever having heard her laugh before. You didn't suppose I was going to keep two girls, did you? No wonder you were scared at the expense. He still had but a confused sense of what she was saying. From the beginning of, this, of the discussion, he had instinctively avoided the mention of Maddie's name, fearing he hardly knew what, criticism, complaints, or vague allusions to the imminent probability of her marrying. But he thought of a definite rupture, had, but the thought of a definite rupture had never come to him, and even now could not lodge itself in his mind. I don't know what you mean, he said. Maddie Silver's not a hired girl. She's your relation. She's a pauper that's hung on to us after all her father done his best to ruin us. I've kept her a whole year. It's somebody else's turn now. As the shrill word shot out, Ethan heard a tap on the door, which he had drawn shut when he turned back from the threshold. Ethan, Zena, Maddie's voice sounded gaily from the landing. Do you know what time it is? Supper's been ready half an hour. Inside the room, there was a moment's silence. Then Zena called out from her seat. I'm not coming down to supper. Oh, I'm sorry. Aren't you well? Shan't I bring you up a bite of something? Ethan roused himself with an effort and opened the door. Go along down, Matt. Zena's just a little tired. I'm coming. He heard her, all right, and her quick step on the stairs. Then he shut the door and turned back into the room. His wife's attitude was unchanged, her face inexorable, and he was seized with a despairing sense of his helplessness. You ain't going to do it, Zena. Do what? She emitted between flattened lips. Send Maddie away, like this? I never bargained to take her for life. He continued with rising vehemence. You can't put her out of the house like a thief, a poor girl without friends or money. She's done her best for you, and she's got no place to go. You may forget she's your kin, but everybody else will remember it. If you do a thing like that, what do you suppose folks will say of you? 
Zena waited a moment, as if giving him time to feel the full force of the contrast between his own excitement and her composure. Then she replied in the same smooth voice, I know well enough what they say of my having kept her here as long as I have. Ethan's hand dropped from the doorknob, which he had held clenched since he had drawn the door shut on Maddie. His wife's retort was like a knife cut across the sinews, and he felt suddenly weak and powerless. He had meant to humble himself, to argue that Maddie's keep didn't cost much, after all, and that he could make out to buy a stove and fix up a place in the attic for the hired girl. But Zena's words revealed the peril of such pleadings. You mean to tell her she's got to go? At once? He faltered out, in terror of letting his wife complete her sentence. As if trying to make him see reason, she replied impartially, The girl will be over from Bettsbridge tomorrow, and I presume she's got to have somewheres to sleep. Ethan looked at her with loathing. She was no longer the listless creature who had lived at his side in a state of sullen self-absorption, but a mysterious alien, alien presence, an evil energy secreted, secreted from the long years of silent brooding. It was the sense of his helplessness that sharpened his antipathy. There had never been anything in her that one could appeal to, but as long as he could ignore and command, he had remained indifferent. Now she had mastered him, and he abhorred her. Maddie was her relation, not his. There was no means by which he could compel her to keep the girl under her roof. All the long misery of his baffled past, of his youth of failure, hardship, and vain effort, rose up in his soul and bitterness and seemed to take shape before him and the woman who at every turn had barred his way. She had taken everything else from him, and now she meant to take the one thing that made up for all the others. For a moment, such a flame of hate rose in him that it ran down his arm and clenched his fist against her. He took a wild step forward and then stopped. You're, you're not coming down, he said in a bewildered voice. No, I guess I'll lay down on the bed a while, she answered mildly, and he turned and walked out of the room. In the kitchen, Maddie was sitting by the stove, the cat curled up on her knees. She sprang to her feet as Ethan entered and carried the covered dish of meat pie to the table. I hope Zena isn't sick, she asked. No, she shone at him across the table. Well, sit right down then, you must be starving. She uncovered the pie and pushed it over to him. So they were to have one more evening together, her happy eyes seemed to say. He helped himself mechanically and began to eat. Then disgust took him by the throat, and he laid down his fork. Maddie's tender gaze was on him, and she marked the gesture. Why, Ethan, what's the matter? Don't it taste right? Yes, it's first rate. Only I... He pushed his plate away, rose from his chair, and walked around the table to her side. She started up with frightened eyes. Ethan, there's something wrong. I knew there was. She seemed to melt against him in her terror, and he caught her in his arms, held her fast there, felt her lashes beat against his cheek like netted butterflies. What is it? What is it? She stammered, but he had found her lips at last and was drinking unconsciousness of everything but the joy they gave him. She lingered a moment, caught in the same strong current. Then she slipped from him and drew back a step or two, pale and troubled. Her look smote him with compunction, and he cried out as if he saw her drowning in a stream. You can't go, Matt. I'll never let you. Go? Go? 
she stammered. Must I go? The words went on, sounding between them as though a torch of warning flew from hand to hand through a black landscape. Ethan was overcome with shame at his lack of self-control and flinging the news at her so brutally. His head reeled and he had to support himself against the table. All the while he felt as if he were still kissing her and yet dying of thirst for her lips. Ethan, what has happened? Is Zena mad with me? Her cry steadied him, though it deepened his wrath and pity. No, no, he reassured her. It's not that. But this new doctor has scared her about herself. You know she believes all they say the first time she sees them. And this one's told her that she won't get well unless she lays up and don't do a thing about the house. Not for months. He paused, his eyes wandering from her miserably. She stood silent a moment, drooping before him like a broken branch. She was so small and weak-looking that it wrung his heart, but suddenly she lifted her head and looked straight at him. And she wants somebody handier in my place? Is that it? That's what she says tonight. If she says it tonight, she'll say it tomorrow. Both bowed to the inexorable truth. They knew that Zena never changed her mind, and that in her case a resolve once taken was equivalent to an act performed. There was a long silence between them. Then Maddie said in a low voice, Don't be too sorry, Ethan. Oh, God, oh, God, he groaned. The glow of passion he had felt for her had melted to an aching tenderness. He saw her quick lids beating back the tears and longed to take her in his arms and soothe her. You're letting your supper get cold, she admonished him with a pale gleam of gaiety. Oh, Matt, Matt, where will you go? Her lids sank in a tremor crossed her face. He saw that for the first time, the thought of the future came to her distinctly. I might get something to do over at Stanford, she faltered, as if knowing that he knew she had no hope. He dropped back into his seat and hid his face in his hands. Despair seized him at the thought of her setting out alone to renew the weary quest for work. In the only place where she was known, she was surrounded by indifference and, um, and animosity. And what chance had she, inexperienced and untrained among the million bread-seekers of the cities? There came back to him miserable tales he had heard at Worcester and the faces of girls whose lives had begun as hopefully as Maddie's. It was not possible to think of such things without a revolt of his whole being. He sprang up suddenly. You can't go, Matt. I won't let you. She's always had her way, but I mean to have mine now. Maddie lifted her hand with a quick gesture, and he heard his wife's step behind him. Zena came into the room with her dragging down at the heel step and quietly took her accustomed seat between them. I felt a little mite better, and Dr. Buck says I ought to eat all I can to keep my strength up, even if I ain't got any appetite, she said in her flat whine, reaching across Maddie for the teapot. Her good dress had been replaced by the black calico and brown knitted shawl which formed her daily wear, and with them she had put on her usual face and manner. She poured out her tea, added a great deal of milk to it, helped herself largely to pie and pickles, and made the familiar gesture of adjusting her false teeth before she began to eat. The cat rubbed itself ingratiatingly against her, and she said, Good pussy, stooped to stroke it and gave it a scrap of meat from her plate. Ethan sat speechless, not pretending to eat, but Maddie nibbled valiantly at her food and asked Zena one or two questions about her visit to Bettsbridge. Zena answered in her everyday tone and, warming to the theme, 
regaled them with several vivid descriptions of intestinal disturbances among her friends and relatives. She looked straight at Maddie as she spoke, a faint smile deepening the vertical lines between her nose and chin. When supper was over, she rose from her seat and pressed her hand to the flat surface over the region of her heart. That pie of yours always sets a mite heavy, Matt, she said, not ill-naturedly. She seldom abbreviated the girl's name, and when she did, it was always a sign of affability. I've a good mind to go and hunt up these stomach powders I got last year over at Springfield, she continued. I ain't tried them for quite a while, and maybe they'll help the heartburn. Maddie lifted her eyes. Can't I get them for you, Zena? She ventured. No, they're in a place you don't know about, Zena answered darkly with one of her secret looks. She went out of the kitchen, and Maddie, rising, began to clear the dishes from the table. As she passed Ethan's chair, their eyes met and clung together desolately. The warm, still kitchen looked as peaceful as the night before. The cat had sprung to Zena's rocking chair, and the heat of the fire was beginning to draw out the faint, sharp scent of the geraniums. Ethan dragged himself wearily to his feet. "'I'll go out and take a look around,' he said, going towards the passage to get his lantern." As he reached the door, he met Zena coming back into the, into the room, her lips twitching with anger, a flush of excitement on her sallow face. The shawl had slipped from her shoulders and was dragging at her downtrodden heels, and in her hands she carried the fragments of the red glass pickle dish. I'd like to know who done this, she said, looking sternly from Ethan to Maddie. There was no answer, and she continued in a trembling voice. I went to get those powders I'd put away in, in, in father's old spectacle case, top of the china closet, where I keep the things I set store by, so folks shan't meddle with them. Her voice was broke, and two small tears hung on her, lash, her lashless lids and ran slowly down her cheeks. It takes a stepladder to get at the top shelf, and I put on for Laura Maple's fresh pickle dish up there a, a purpose when we was married. It's never been down since, except for the spring cleaning. And then I always lifted it with my own hands so that it shouldn't get broke. She laid the fragments reverently on the table. I want to know who done this, she quavered. At the challenge, Ethan turned back into the room and faced her. I can tell you then, the cat done it. The cat? That's what I said. She looked at him hard and then turned her eyes to Maddie, who was carrying the dishpan to the table. I'd like to know how the cat got into my china closet she said. Chasing mice, I guess, Ethan rejoined. There was a mouse round the kitchen all last evening. Zena continued to look from one to the other. Then she emitted her small, strange laugh. I knew the cat was a smart cat, she said in a high voice, but I didn't know he was smart enough to pick up the pieces of my pickle dish and lay them edge to edge on the very shelf he knocked them off of. Maddie suddenly drew her arms out of the steaming water. It wasn't Ethan's fault, Zena. The cat did break the dish, but I got it down from the china closet, and I'm the one to blame for its getting broken. Zena stood beside the ruin of her treasure, stiffening to a stony image of resentment. You got my pickle dish for what? A bright flush flew to Maddie's cheeks. I wanted to make the supper table pretty, she said. You wanted to make the supper table pretty, and you waited till my back was turned and took the thing I set most store by of anything I got and would never use it, not even when the minister came to dinner or Aunt Martha Pierce came over from Bettsbridge. Zena paused with a gasp 
as if terrified by her own evocation of the sacrilege. You're a bad girl, Maddie Silver, and I always known it. It's the way your father begun, and I was warned of it when I took you, and I tried to keep my things where you couldn't get at them, and now you've took them from me, the one thing that I cared for most of all. She broke off in a short spasm of sobs that passed and left her more than ever like a shape of stone. If I'd a listened to folks, you'd a gone before now, and this wouldn't a happened, she said, and gathered up the beats of the bits of broken glass. She went out of the room as if she carried a dead body. And that, my friends, will do it for chapters five through seven of Edith Wharton's Ethan Frome. I hope you guys were able to enjoy the reading, despite my few reading flubs there. You know, they do happen from time to time. I am not perfect. But in any case, I really do hope that you're able to enjoy the reading and that you're enjoying the storyline. I, I think it's quite interesting. In any event, thank you guys so much for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics. And I hope you will return for more chapters of Edith Wharton's Ethan Frome. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.